right, well, it's good to be together. Another beautiful day in the park here. If you have your Bibles, want to invite you to open those up to Daniel chapter 8. And I am just personally very excited for the way that the Lord is going to meet us this morning in His Word. Um, those of you who are newer with us here, we've, uh, we've been going the last few weeks, we've been going chapter by chapter through, through this book of Daniel here, and I've been super encouraged. I know that many of you as well have just been encouraged by this, uh, this familiar yet unfamiliar portion of Scripture, and uh, just been very uh, appreciated the, the timely impact, the, the hope-giving impact that it's had on my life, I know many of yours as well, and I trust that this morning God wants to do the same thing in our hearts through Daniel chapter 8. Uh, so I just want to invite you to, to follow along, to listen uh, as Nick reads Daniel chapter 8 to us. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, 
For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Blessed be God's word. Praise be to God. Thank you very much, Nick. Well, I've titled my sermon this morning, Hope for Our How Longs. I've done this because the more time that I've spent in this text, the more I've been convinced that this passage here is offering us hope. And not just a, a vague sense of optimism about the future, but to steal a phrase from Tab's sermon last week, this passage here offers us a theologically informed hope that you and I can count on especially when we need it the most, in the midst of the how-longs of life that we read about there in verse 13. By how-longs here, I'm talking about those situations in life that cause us to wonder, how long? How long is this going to go on for? 
For you, maybe it's how long am I or how long is this person that I love going to suffer and be in pain like this? Maybe it's how long is this going to, how long is it going to feel like I'm in a, a holding pattern with my life, with my job, with my relationship status? Maybe you're asking this morning, how long am I going to struggle with this sin? Or maybe you're here this morning wondering, how long is this need or this good and godly desire going to continue to go unmet by God or by his people? And truth be told, this question here, how long, it's one of the most natural, one of the most human questions that we ask. In the midst of struggling and suffering, it is just so natural for us to ask and to wonder how long. So what is it for you this morning? What is your how long? What's the situation that you're facing that has you asking that question? Something come to mind for you there? Well, whatever it is this morning, no matter what your how long situation is, as we come to God's word this morning, he wants to meet you and fill you with hope. He wants to to use Daniel 8 to build your faith and to fill you with a theologically informed hope, one that will sustain you in the midst of the hard times. Specifically in our passage this morning, we are going to see three God-centered realities that give us hope for our how longs. We're going to see three God-centered realities that help us locate our hope in God right here, right now. As we approach our text, I think it'll just be, be helpful for me to explain up front just the structure of the passage so you can follow along as I'm bouncing back and forth. Uh, like many previous passages in Daniel, the first half of this passage contains a vision And the second half of the passage, starting in verse 15, explains the interpretation of this vision. So as we walk through the text, I'm going to be jumping back and forth, looking at each part of the vision and then looking at its interpretation to help us connect the dots with what's going on and to help us really feel the weight of this passage on our lives. So diving in here, what is the first reality that we see as we look at our passage? I think the first God-centered reality that we see in our text to build hope, to give us hope in the midst of our how longs is God's control over history. Starting in verse 1, Daniel sets the stage for the vision that he's about to see and he records for us. In verse 1, he says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. So here he is two years after receiving his first vision. Perhaps this was not long enough for Daniel after receiving the first vision, but here he is two years later and he receives a second vision from God. In this vision, Daniel sees a ram with two horns, one larger than the other. And this ram is coming from the east, and he's charging in all directions, to the west, to the north, and to the south. And he's trampling everything in his path. This ram is unstoppable. And as Daniel sees this ram charging, he he takes a step back to pause and to consider what this vision could mean but the vision's not over because as soon as he, he starts to consider what it means, a ram or a goat with a large horn comes into the middle of this vision. I'm sure he's thinking to himself that this must look like this must be a strange looking unicorn or something, this goat with a large horn on its head. 
And as this goat is coming, he sees it coming from the west at such great speed that it doesn't even look like it's touching the ground. The goat defeats the ram who had become great, and the goat himself becomes exceedingly great. We see this, this phrase repeated again and again, the goat becomes great, and then, or the ram becomes great, the goat defeats the ram, the goat becomes great. And then we see the, the goat's horn is broken off, and in its place, four horns arise. Four horns grow in its place in, in four different directions. And then out of one of these horns comes a little horn. And, and, and don't ask me how this happened. Don't ask me what it looked like. But we are told that a little horn grows. And this little horn that grows up itself becomes great. Now more happens in the vision. But I just want to stop right there right now and unpack this, this moment of what just happened in here that we might be filled with hope. But before I do that, I just want to mention this tab highlighted last week here, starting in chapter 7 as we look at the book of Daniel, the, the, the genre of the book of Daniel largely changes from being kind of recording a historical narrative to being apocalyptic literature. When we read about the rams and the goats here, we're reading apocalyptic literature. And important for us to understand what's going on here is we need to see that at the heart of apocalyptic literature is just that it's very image-based. It is very symbolic. And so when we read it, we don't want to read it literalistically. We want to read it literarily. That, that is, we want to read it according to the rules of its genre. And here we're going to see in the interpretation that this vision doesn't really have much to do with rams and goats and horns, but this vision has to do with kings and with kingdoms here. And we know this because in verses 25 through 27, we have the divine interpretation of this vision, and it has nothing to do with animals. So specifically for the verses we just looked at, the verses 19 to 22, we have the, the interpretation of that. And here we see the angel Gabriel is under orders from God himself, and he tells Daniel the meaning of these images. He tells him what the goat means, what the ram means, and what we're to take from that. So in, in Gabriel's interpretation, we see that the ram with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The goat is the kingdom of Greece with that large unicorn-like horn symbolizing the first great king of Greece, Alexander the Great. In verse 8, we see that this great horn is unexpectedly broken off, referring to Alexander the Great's untimely death uh, while, sometime while he's in his 30s. And just as the vision shows, the kingdom of Greece then breaks into four smaller kingdoms, none of them having Alexander's power. And out of one of these four little kingdoms, a little horn arises, referring to a king from Greece who would become great. And in just a minute, we're going to see exactly who this king is and what he does. But I think as we, we needed to pause and, and reflect on what we just saw here in these first couple of verses, because what we just read here is nothing short of absolutely amazing. <laughs> because in these verses, God gives Daniel a vision of what is going to happen over the next about 400 years of human history. 
In fact, looking at this passage, looking at this prophecy, and it, or looking at this vision and its interpretation, many scholars have looked at this text and they have said, there is no way that this was written before all these events took place. There's no way that that happened. This had to have been written in the first or the second century BC because of how accurate this is, because of how dead on this, this, vi this vision is. But to, to take that position, to think that this was written after the fact, completely misses the point of what God was wanting to do in giving his people this vision. And that is not wanting to give them a history lesson, but God is wanting to fill his people with hope as he shows them and as he reminds them that he is the one in control of human history. No matter what the Israelites were facing, and as we remember that they are in exile, reading this passage, the Israelites could know that God is ultimately in control of all that happens and to find sweet comfort in that. To look and to see that God is the one who controls and who knows all that is happening in human history. And from that, they could take a step back and see that God knows is intimately involved with everything that is happening with their life. And you and me this morning can take a step back and see that this God who knows and this God who controls all of history, including our how longs right now, is the one who is in control of all of history. I think J.I. Packer, the great pastor theologian who died last year, said it well. When he said that to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. I like that. God's control over history, God's control over your life and mine, God's control over our how longs right now is meant to be a stabilizing reality for us, calming our anxieties, our fears, and our worries that can so easily creep into our how longs. You aware of those feelings this morning? Can you relate with the fear and anxiety that comes with the question of how long? Well, into our realities, this truth, into our anxieties, this truth, this reality here, it's meant to be like the weight at the bottom of a weeble wobble. You, you know that toy I'm talking about, those little weeble wobbles? These toys are a whole lot of fun even for a 34, almost 35-year-old man. They're kind of shaped like an egg and they're weighted at the bottom. So no matter what you do to it, no matter how much you hit it, no matter how much you roll it around, it always comes, stands straight back up. It always comes standing straight back. There's nothing you can do to it to make it fall and tip over. It just always comes right back up because of the weight that's in the bottom of it. And just like that weight in the bottom of the weeble wobble keeps it always coming and standing back up, uh, the reality of God's control over human history and over our lives, it's meant to be the weight in the bottom of the weeble wobble of our hope. It's meant to be the weight and the weeble wobble of our soul that always keeps us standing, that always keeps us coming back. Because as we live in the, this fallen world where there are no lack of things that are trying to push our hope to the ground, trying to knock it over, trying to give, cause us to give in to despair, that are causing us to, to give in to hopelessness, there are, there are no lack of, of challenges of things that come into our lives that threaten to do that. 
But this truth here, the reality of that God is in control as it's functioning for us, it is able to, to stabilize our souls. It is able to, to stabilize our hope and to keep it standing. So is your how long this morning leaving you hopeless? Perhaps you feel like you have given into or maybe you want to give into despair. This morning here in Daniel chapter 8, God wants to stabilize your soul. He wants to stabilize your, stabilize your hope by reminding you that he's in control. Please don't hear me saying that this truth is going to make your problems go away. It is not going to make them go away. But for the child of God, knowing that our good and loving Heavenly Father is in control of all that is happening right now, we can face our how longs knowing that they have not caught him by surprise. They have not caught him off guard. And as we're going to see, he is up to something redemptive and something restorative through them. So you longing for hope this morning for your how long? I think the first call from God to us this morning is to look to and rest in God's control over history. But that's not all we see because Daniel chapter 8, because next in Daniel chapter 8, we also see the second God-centered reality to give us hope, and that is God's preparation for persecution. So let's jump back into our vision that Daniel saw, starting in verse 9. We see the rise of this little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land, referring to Jerusalem, referring to the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And in verses 10 through 12, we see this little horn become great and wage war against God's people. We see this little horn overthrowing the temple, stopping the evening and morning sacrifices. This little horn, we are told, is going to throw truth itself to the ground, disregarding God's word, and he's going to prosper in all that he does. Well, not everyone agrees, but, from, but from, this, from, from the interpretation of this vision in verses 23 through 25, from history itself, it seems that this little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes, who overthrew Jerusalem sometime around 170 B.C. From what we know of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, it was every bad as this vision paints him to be. History tells us that he plotted the murder of Onias, the high priest. He desecrated the temple by dedicating an altar to Zeus in the temple. We're even told that he sacrificed unclean animals, perhaps even a pig on this temple dedicated to Zeus, what some have called the abomination of desolation. In addition to these terrible things, Antiochus forbid the people from worshiping God. He, he's, he forbid this morning and evening sacrifices that God had required of his people. In the, in the book of 2 Maccabees, there's a, there's a report of over a three-day period when he first came into Jerusalem to overtake it, how he killed 40,000 people, young and old, including women and children. They were slaughtered, and just as many were sold into slavery. This was this, the, the persecution we read about here in verses 10 through 12 and the interpretation is every bit as bad as it seems. In fact, I think Daniel's response in verse 27 is helpful for us. We can see the weight that this persecution had on Daniel as in verse 27, Daniel says, and I was overcome and lay sick for some days. 
Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel here, seeing this vision of the future persecution of God's people, is overcome. He is physically sick and appalled by this. It certainly seems like an appropriate response. And yet, as we reflect on this vision here, I think we're meant to find hope in the darkness. Recorded here, because again, these words in Daniel aren't meant to be a history lesson for God's people. No, these verses, in these verses, God is preparing his people for persecution. In God's love and care for his people, he is letting them know ahead of time that their persecution isn't over. Just think of the people in exile as they were thinking about all, the, all of the persecution that they've already experienced at the hands of the Babylonians, uh, perhaps thinking that this was the end of it. Maybe, maybe this is the end of it. And yet in this vision, God warns his people and tells them that more persecution is yet to come. And so in giving them this warning, what God is seeking to do is to protect the hope of his people by making sure that they don't have unrealistic expectations for the future. I think that this hope-protecting truth is so needed in our lives because as we can, can have unrealistic expectations of what to expect in the Christian life, it is so easy for the little weeble-wobble of our hope to get knocked over as we just, we didn't expect it. Hard things come, we didn't see it coming. Suffering comes into our life and we're not prepared and so we just guess that God either doesn't know or he doesn't care. But in this passage, God is warning us, he's warning the Israelites here that things might get worse. He's not promising a better tomorrow with no suffering. He's not promising that everything is going to get better always and ever. That no, in this life, in this fallen world, they will experience persecution. And just like the Israelites needed their, their hope protected, you and I need this reality protecting our hope that God is preparing his people for persecution because God's preparation of his people for persecution, it wasn't just an Old Testament reality, but we see this all over the New Testament as well. In the Gospels, Jesus, as he's making his way to the cross, he tells his, he tells his disciples and he tells you and me that just as the world hated and persecuted him, it will hate and persecute us. Acts tells the story of the early church and the suffering and persecution that they endured. Letters in the New Testament, like 1 Peter, like Hebrews and James, are written to offer hope to Christians who are experiencing very real, very hard persecution and suffering. And the book of Revelation itself paints a terrifying picture of the persecution and the suffering that God's people will endure before Jesus' return. You see, God doesn't want us to miss the fact that in this fallen world, suffering and persecution are going to be the norm for Christians. This has been the experience of God's people throughout church history, and it's the experience of God's people today. Just this last week, I was reading Open Door's um, World Watch List report that they put out at the beginning of every year, and where they and they just had some stats that just, I mean, they were similar to what Tav shared last week. But they uh, part of their stats they had said that worldwide, every day, every day, so it's today, right now, 
every day 13 Christians are killed for their faith. 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked every day. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or, um, or arrested or imprisoned. That, that, that's happening right now. The suffering and the persecution of God's people is not just something that happened back then or something that's going to happen in the future, but it's a very live reality for us. And God knows that expectations matter, which is why he's given us this word to protect our hope. God wants his people to know. He wants you and me to know right now that in this world, we will have trouble. Um, that in this world, we will have trouble. And I think just it's, it's helpful for us as we look at the persecution that God's people are going to experience here in that Daniel unpacks. As we look at the persecution I just mentioned of Christians around the world, it can be e very easy for us to think uh, uh, that this doesn't apply to us, that, we, that we're not suffering or we don't face persecution because it's not to that extent. And I, and I do agree that our suffering is not the same. Our persecution is not the same. But for you and I this morning, we still experience suffering in the Christian life. We still suffer on the path way of discipleship. And in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of these difficulties that often cause us to question and ask how long this God-centered reality here is meant to function like another weight in the bottom of that weeble wobble of our hope, helping us to continue standing even when life threatens to push us down. When we face suffering, when we face hardships in the middle of the questions, when we ask how long we can know and have confidence that God didn't promise a trouble-free life, but he knows our suffering. He knows what we're experiencing. And most importantly, in Christ, he has experienced for us, or he has experienced suffering for us, and he is suffering right alongside us as our sympathetic high priest. The second point here, that God is preparing us for persecution, that, that builds and strengthens our hope for life in this fallen world. And, and, and before we move on to our, our third point, um, I, I do think that Daniel's response in verse 27 is instructive for us as we consider the persecutions of Christians that's happening around the world right now. Seeing persecution, Daniel, seeing the persecution that God's people are going to experience, Daniel is, is overcome. He is physically sick and appalled. And I think, and, and it seems like that you and I should have a similar response as we consider the persecution of God's people around the world right now. In fact, in, in Hebrews 13, we're told to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So I think the persecution of the church is meant to, to affect us. It's meant to, to fill us with grief, sadness, and sorrow. And while I'm not saying, while I'm not daring you to be like Daniel this morning, I do think that Daniel's example, his response to the persecution of his people is meant to spur us on all the more to be mindful of the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world and to be in prayer for them. All right, so we've seen two realities meant to stabilize our hope, meant to give us hope in the midst of our how longs. First, God's control over history, and second, God's preparation for persecution. And as we look at the end of our vision, we're going to see the biggest cause that we have for hope, and that is God's promise of rescue and restoration. The end of this vision here in verses 13 and 14, we see God's promise of rescue and restoration. 
When we last left our vision, things could not have been worse for God's people. The little horn has been persecuting God's people, doing whatever he pleases without any sign that anything or anyone can stop him. But as the vision continues, we are ushered into heavenly dialogue as we eavesdrop on a discussion between two angels. Starting in verse 13, we read, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In these verses here, we hear one angel asking another, how long are God's people going to be persecuted like this? To which the other angel says that this persecution is going to last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. There's a, a couple of different interpretations of what that could mean, whether that means literally 2,300 days, so a period of time just under seven years, or whether it refers to half of that, the evenings and mornings each refer to one day, and so it means 1,150 days. We're not sure exactly what that means, and truth be told, you could probably make an argument for either of those. But as, we, but as we're reading this, as we're reading, this uh, as we're reading apocalyptic literature here, it's important for us to keep in mind that the main thing we're meant to take away from verses 13 and 14 here isn't the exact meaning of the number of days that this persecution is going to go on for. But what God wants us to take away is that, God's, is, that we, is that there's going to be an end to this persecution. As we read these verses, we are, we're not meant to take away the exact timing that the persecution will end, but God wants to assure his people that their persecution is not going to go on forever. This persecution that they're experiencing has an end date. It will not go on forever. And as we read about in verse 14, when the persecution comes to an end, restoration will come. What a great promise that at the end of rescue, restoration will come. And this will come as God defeats the little horn, as we see in verse 25. In verse 25, we read, And he, the little horn, shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That's a reference to God himself. And he, referring to the little horn, shall be broken, but by no human hand. You'll remember back to Daniel chapter 2, this phrase by no human hand is meant to stick out for us as we remember in Daniel chapter 2 is going to be a, cut, a, a stone cut out of the mountain by no human hand that will be thrown at the statue that will cause it to crumble. And here in Daniel chapter 8, we see that the, this king, this little horn, this type of an antichrist who is persecuting God's people, who is challenging God himself, he is going to be defeated. And he is going to be defeated by no human hand because he's going to be defeated by God himself. You see, not only is God in control of how long the persecution will last, but he is the one who will bring an end to it by defeating his enemies and restoring his people. As we look back at the interpretation of the vision, we can see that this was originally fulfilled in 164 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, mysteriously dies of an illness. 
and the Israelites as they are led by, by Judas Maccabeus as they drive out the people from Jerusalem as they cleanse and rededicate the temple in the Maccabean revolt. It's what the, what the Jewish people today celebrate each year at Hanukkah. They're celebrating the, the, the original fulfillment here of Daniel chapter 8 as the temple is restored, as God's people come back and worship in the temple. And so surely we see here that this promise of restoration, it would have given hope to the Israelites in the midst of their how longs as they wondered for the original readers, how long are they ever going to get out of Babylonian captivity? God is promising them here that your enemies are going to be defeated and you're going to be restored to the land. And Daniel 8 would have certainly given much hope to those reading this hundreds of years later who found themselves experiencing the very persecution that Daniel saw in this vision. But for you and for me, as we look at this passage on this side of the cross, I think that this promise gives us much more hope than the Israelites ever could have had because it takes on a much deeper meaning because on this side of the cross, we know that the promise of rescue and restoration that is envisioned here is only a, a mere picture of the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate rescue and restoration that God will provide for his people in the death resurrection, and future return of Jesus. You see, as bad as Antiochus Epiphanes was, he was never God's people's biggest enemy. You know, the Bible speaks of Satan, sin, and death as our greatest enemies. And in Jesus' sacrificial death, in his triumphant resurrection, he has defeated them and canceled their power over all who trust in Jesus. Is this not hope producing in your soul this morning that as you face whatever your how long is this morning, whatever that hard situation is that you are facing, that if you have trusted in Jesus, you can rest assured that your ultimate enemies have been defeated. Sin, Satan, and death have no say over you. Let us, let us hope in God's promise of rescue and restoration that he has already brought about and that, is he, and that he is continuing to bring about because God's promise of restoration for you and me has already started for all who have trusted in Christ. God has already restored our relationship with him, giving back what has been lost. God is at work restoring in our souls, mending all that has been broken as he promises in each and every one of our lives to make all things new. That's the hope that this passage offers us this morning, that God has rescued us, and in his resurrection, in his future return, he will restore our souls to him. I think Tim Keller hits the nail on the head for how this truth can give us hope for our how longs when he says that the biblical view of things is resurrection. That's the biblical view of life. The biblical view of life is resurrection. And by that, he means not just a, fut not a future that is just a consolation for the life we, we never had, but a restoration of the life we've always wanted. This means that for every horrible thing that ever happened and will not, will not only be undone and repaired, but in some way, but it will in some way make the, the eventual glory and joy even greater. Brothers and sisters this morning, your how long moments right now, whatever that is for you, 
in this promise of rescue and restoration, God is telling you that not only will that be undone and repaired, it will be restored, but that they will make your eventual experience of glory even greater. It will fill you with even more joy. Living life filled with how longs, God's promise of restoration, it's another weight in the weeble wobble of our hope that can keep us standing tall, that can keep us going, that can keep us from falling over when we know that God's work of restoration has already started in our lives. And one day, God's work of restoration in our life and in the whole world will be completed when he returns in glory as we see Jesus face to face and seeing him. We will become like him. That is hope giving for us. Grace Church, your how long this morning does not have the final say, but God does. He will restore everything, and because of that, you and I can have hope this morning. Hope that God is at work. Hope that God is bringing rescue and restoration for us. He has done it in Christ, and he will do it when Christ returns. Well, I want to invite Rick down, invite the Lord's Supper team to prepare to, Lord, to, to take the Lord's Supper. And before we do that, I just want to invite everyone here to take a moment um, to, to interact with the Lord, to think about what you've heard this morning, and to consider how God might be speaking to you through his word. I, I just in, invite and encourage you to reflect on the God-centered realities that we have seen in his word this morning and to allow God and to allow God to use them to fill you with hope. Before we do that, just a, a brief word. If you are here and you have, have not yet trusted in Christ, if you are here and you would say, I'm just checking out this church thing. I don't, I don't know who Jesus is, I don't, but I, but I want to find out more. But you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. This morning, I want to in, encourage you I want to encourage you to, to look to Christ. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he is offering you hope for your how long. He is offering you hope in the difficulties of life right now. And by looking to him, by trusting in him, you can have hope. And so I invite you to do that. So why don't we spend a few moments reflecting on that. In a moment, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the, for the realities you've given us in your word this morning, that we might have hope in the midst of the hard times. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister your word to your people this morning, that you would fill them with hope, that no matter what is going on in life, that we can have hope knowing that you are in control knowing that you desire to protect our hope and knowing that you have rescued and will ultimately restore all things to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think an appropriate way for us to close this morning is by taking the Lord's Supper to remember the hope that we have.